0: Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. How are you guys doing this morning? Hey, just to reiterate what Pastor Aaron said, baptism Sunday, get signed up. Uh, We did have nine last time, but we had two or three that just showed up, and we're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to hop in that pool, so... Come on, we're excited about that. Um, I told Pastor Jeremy that it was pretty embarrassing to host a golf tournament, invite a bunch of people, and then beat them at golf. It seemed kind of weird for me, but it's fine. That's not up to me, so that's okay. Um, yeah, my name is Carson. I am the youth and young adults. I had mentioned it earlier that I've been at three weeks of camp. Yeah, three weeks. It's been a blur. You don't get much sleep there, but hey, a lot of you donated money and time to make that happen. I just want to say thank you again for that. And then Young Adults is actually kicking off this fall. Let's go. Let's give a hand clap for that. Come on. Let's get... Hey, we're glad you guys are here. It's our holiday schedule, so maybe you guys showed up a little early. If you accidentally got into the um, uh, volunteer meeting this morning, that's a sign that you are actually supposed to sign up for a serving team, so... If you accidentally got here early, last week, I mean, last time, I think uh, we had our holiday schedule. I saw a couple people walking in for the 11 o'clock service when we were leaving. Um, If that's you this time, if you see someone doing that, it's your job to explain the sermon to them, so make sure you're paying attention. Um, But everybody look to uh, one of your neighbors and say, this sermon is for you. Now look to your second favorite neighbor and say, this sermon's for me, too. All right, so we are in our summer stories. It's week five, and our, what we've been saying is Jesus told stories to reveal larger truths. And so this summer, we're telling the stories that Jesus told to learn the things that Jesus wanted us to learn. So we've been in parables. Today, we're going to be in Matthew 21, um, a great chapter of the Bible. Jesus shows up. It's Holy Week um, where they celebrate of uh, the atonement, um, and how God saved them from the very beginning when he rescued them out of Egypt, um, and Jesus is in there, and he's confronting some of the religious authorities. How many of you guys have read The Great Gatsby? You can, sh- you can raise your hand. Anybody have to read that in school? Okay, a good portion. How many of you guys have uh, seen the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? Maybe, okay, so we're good, we're solid. I in college had to write a paper on The Great Gatsby and no, I did not read the book. So I got a B plus though, shout out to my teacher, that was great. So I don't wanna sell myself short though, I have read part of it, um, but it is a literary classic. Like this is a book that you read in school, that's why people raise their hands because there's just so much stuff going on and it is a well-written book. One of the biggest things that it's known for would be like its symbolism, right? So symbolism is very important in this book. And there's this contrast in the book that's going on about, like, like the industrial, like filth of like the, you know the nature of the time that they're in, and it's usually represented by like the word ashes. Now, somebody in here who's actually read the book a little better than me, um, if you feel like this analogy doesn't line up, uh, just give me some grace here. Don't tell anyone. So, but there's this there's this idea that there's industrial filth in the city, and they usually word, use the word ashes uh, when they're referencing that type of thing, right? So and then there's this contrast. Obviously, he's a very wealthy man, um, and he's throwing these extravagant parties. And when he wants to distract, kind of from what the reality of the world is, he uses this phrase called "old sport." Now, these two things that are going on, kind of they they perk up your attention a little bit. They're like, okay, I need to pay attention. There's, they're, they're laying breadcrumbs for me, they're setting me up for a payoff, and I should pay attention to what's going on. So when you see these two ser- turn of phrases, it's like, okay, let me, let me, pay, let me, let me, let me make this happen, i got to pay attention, let me pay a little closer uh, to what's going on. So, the book of Matthew is a huge payoff when it comes to the entire story of the Bible, Matthew was a Jewish man, and he's writing this book, and he is doing so many payoffs for the entirety of the Bible. It begins um, today in our parable. We're talking about the parable of the tenants, and the tenants are in a vineyard. So, we talk about good and evil, and we talk about fruit. Well, where do we recognize that from? It's in Genesis 2. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, there's fruit, and there's good, and there's evil. And it's from the very beginning, but it doesn't stop there. It continues time and time again. It's in Genesis 2. It's in 1 Kings 21. I'm just going to hit like some highlights. We'll talk about 1 Kings 21 in a second, um, but it's in several psalms throughout throughout them. There's 150, but it's in plenty of them. It's in Isaiah 5, which is what uh, Jesus is kind of referencing when he tells this parable. It's also in Isaiah 27. Um, It's just going throughout the Bible, and then we get to Matthew in chapter 3, and John the Baptist is speaking, and he mentions it himself. He says, when many saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are the people that Jesus is confronting in Matthew 21, they show up to his baptism. You know, John the Baptizer, that's what he does. He's baptizing people, so they show up, he's baptizing people. And he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Is that it? That was, that was the rest of the slide? That was the rest of the slide. Okay, he says that, and then he says, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the next verse. So he talks about fleeing from wrath, and then he talks about uh, the good and evil. That's actually my fault on that slide. I will say that. I did not turn in that verse, so don't blame anybody in the booth. That's on me. Um, and he and said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and he references a viper, which is a snake, which we see in Genesis 2 in the temptation of Adam and Eve. And so Jesus is talking about this, and then in chapter 7, we recognize of Matthew, we see the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' largest chunk of teaching. It's where we get a lot of foundational principles about what it means to follow Christ in this day and age. And in Matthew 7, he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown in the fire, and you will recognize people by their fruits. So we continue down in the book of Matthew and we see this payoff is coming. And then right before we get to 21, he mentions it again in chapter 12 of Matthew. Jesus says to them, you brood of vipers. He calls them that again. It's an underrated insult, I suppose. John the Baptist calls them that. Jesus calls them that. He calls them brood of vipers. And he knew what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they knew what Jesus was doing when he said that to them. So he's connecting this idea of fruits and evil and good. And we see this huge payoff in Matthew for what Jesus is actually trying to do. If something starts in the first two chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve, or creation, and then we see it in the New Testament, that is a theme in the Bible, and we should open up our eyes. We should pay attention, just like the old sport or the ashes. We should pay attention. We're like, something is happening here that I need to pay attention to. And so Jesus, a poet himself, quoting Isaiah 5, he doesn't really focus on the rotten fruit of man in this parable. He's not here to judge from men to men, say that like, hey, I see your fruit, I recognize this fruit. No, he starts to judge from God's message to man. He says, You guys have failed to do this, and Jesus, in authority, is saying, I'm going to take my rightful place. He's beginning to take his rightful place in the kingdom and say, I have authority to say that you have disgraced my love. You've disgraced my judgment, as Pharisees and Sadducees, and I'm here to make things right. That's what Jesus is doing in this parable. We're going to read it real quick. Um, And it's in Matthew 21, 33 through 46, if you brought your Bibles, Um, but I'll have it on the screen for you. So Jesus, in this chapter, he's in Jerusalem, and he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, "Here another parable. There's a master of a house. Who planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it, and he leased it to tenants. He had a wine press in there, and he went to another country. And then, when the season for gathering fruit drew near, he and his servants, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another one. So he sent more servants. He sent more than he did the first time. And they did the same exact thing to them: killed and beat and stoned. And then finally, He sent his son. He said, they're going to respect my son. Now, maybe you guys are thinking, is that really a wise decision? I mean, they're killing people. You're going to send your son over there. It's just a parable. Don't worry. Let's get to the point. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and then we'll get his inheritance. Not super logical, but okay. And then they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus pauses and asks a question. He says, what is he doing? Going to do to them. And the Pharisees looked at him and he said, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits and the seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in his eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118, and Jesus said, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus comes in Jerusalem, and he declares, he says, the time of mishandling freedom is ended. He said, it's instead gonna be handed to the people who are gonna do the will of the fathers. So the tenants in this story, they get to the point where they reject the very son of the person that they were under and they began to think everything was owed to them. They were mishandling the freedom that they were given and they thought everything that I see in front of me belongs to me. That was their mindset. They thought, this is for me. I can kill them. I can take what I want all because they had this freedom as tenants to be in charge of this vineyard. So when we talk about freedom, I'm just going to define it really quick. Um, I actually had this idea that I was going to speak on freedom before I found out what weekend I was speaking. Pastor Jeremy told me to pick a parable. I picked this one. Turns out we're on July 4th weekend. Congratulations, we're all celebrating freedom, so here we go. Um, But the first thing we see in this parable is... God, he built something beautiful, and it was the tenant's job to store it. It was the tenant's job to store them. And then he comes back to see what's produced. And so this idea of freedom is really interesting. For many of us, if you're like a youth, if you're young in this age, maybe you've seen movies, they make movies that are funny all the time, about maybe parents going out of town, and then they throw this like your party, they're having a crazy time, you know, something like that. For some people, it's freedom, like the parents are away, let's have a good time, no one's in charge of us. Or um, I think a year or two ago, there was this movie called Yes Day. I don't know if any of you have seen Yes Day, but maybe if you're a younger audience, the idea was that the kids for one day could ask for anything, and the parents had to say yes to it. Now, I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to take a side on that. Whatever you decide to do, that's okay. That's up to you. That's your decision. I don't have any kids, so but I'll let you know in like five months, I think. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what month we're in. Anyway, but uh, it's July, right? So, but they had this idea that, okay, no one can tell me what to do. I get to decide. Maybe if you have a spouse in the room or something like that, you're like, man, it'd be really cool if my husband or wife went away for the week and no one told me to do anything. Um, I mean, they write country music songs about that. So, I mean, you know, that could be a good time. Some people, you know, the idea of freedom in their mind is no one being able to tell them what to do. Our hearts are set on what it desires. We've, many of us have even heard the phrase that the heart wants what it wants, right? That nobody can stop anything from getting what my heart desires. The heart wants what it wants. It's a funny story about the origin of that phrase, but it's the idea of freedom that you can have what you'd like. And so I'll give you a quick backstory um, on what that happened. See, um, many of us have heard... Let's start here. In 1992, Time Magazine was interviewing Woody Allen. They were interviewing Woody Allen because he had an affair with a woman named Soon-Yi. I don't know if anybody remember this. 1992 was four years before I was born, so um, I wasn't there yet. But in 1992, many of us in this room are old enough to remember it. Woody Allen is being interviewed by Time Magazine because he had an affair with this woman named Soon-Yi. So in the 1980s, Woody Allen had an on-again, off-again relationship with uh, this woman named Mia Farrow, okay? And Mia Farrow, uh, on and off, had a husband before that. So with her husband before that, they adopted two kids um, from Vietnam, and then they adopted a third child, from South Korea, and then Mia Farrow ended up adopting two more kids. So she adopts five kids. She starts dating Willie Allen in there somewhere, and then they have a child together. So there's six kids, two, then one, then two, then one. And so this is really interesting because they start dating. Uh, Woody Allen kind of becomes like the stepfather to these children. Um, And then one day, because this is how Hollywood goes, oftentimes their relationship began to deteriorate. So Woody Allen and Mary Farrow, their relationship began to deteriorate from one another. And then what happened was... There's a lot of versions of the story, but ultimately like what is true and confirmed is one day Mia Farrow comes home and finds pictures. There's maybe some younger ears in here. Finds explicit pictures of her daughter on Woody Allen's mantle. So she realizes that Woody Allen and her daughter are having an affair. He's 56. He was functioning as uh, her stepfather, basically, and she's 21. So she comes home to realize that they're having an affair, and they began to date and then get married, which is, which is kind of a, a, a big, big shock factor. So in, in, in 1992, Time Magazine is interviewing Woody Allen, and they're asking questions about this affair that took place. And they're poking him and prodding him. The interviewer is doing a great job just trying to figure it out, but Woody Allen is showing no remorse for his decision. Not even kind of. He doesn't even say there's any moral ambi- amb- ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, like, he's like, like, I do not feel any remorse or I don't feel like an apology is necessary for what I did. So they get to the end of the interview. And that interviewer asks again, he says, why would you make this decision? Woody Allen, he pauses for a little bit and he says, the heart wants what it wants. And that's when that phrase came in really to commonplace phrase. I mean, Selena Gomez wrote a song about it uh, if you're younger. So, but I mean, the heart wants what it wants. Many of us have heard that phrase. So why, why am I, I telling you all this story? It's because when the Bible references our flesh in the New Testament, that word flesh is really today how we would use the word heart. And the Bible tells us that we should be against our flesh because our flesh does not want what's good for us. So when culture screams, follow your own heart, figure it out, whatever you want inside yourself, go that route, the Bible whispers wisely the opposite. Ignore your flesh. Ignore it. And so when Jesus talked about the word freedom, he wasn't saying freedom is when no one has authority over you, when your heart can actually have what your heart wants. That's not how Jesus was painting the picture of freedom. When Jesus talked about freedom, he said biblical freedom is getting rid of what stands between you and your heavenly father. Freedom is living in the presence of God. Of God and the Bible is openly and honestly telling us, time and time again in the New Testament, to fight our flesh, and oftentimes many of us casually exist in our day to day, giving in to what we want and not laying down our lives for Christ. It's throughout the New Testament, but Galatians five sixteen paints it this way. It says, "I say." This is Paul speaking to a church just like you. He says, "I say." Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't gratify the desires of your heart. He paints it right there. He says, your heart and your spirit are not on the same page. They are against one another. And you must deny your flesh, deny your heart to know what the spirit is calling us to. And so we think about how do we recognize our enemy? How did these people in this story take their freedom and decide that what they wanted was better than what God wanted? Well, I think it's interesting because we're all formed one way or another. Um, in New York, it is, the, it is the, one of the fastest walking cities in the world. So like people who live in New York walk faster than most anywhere else. So they say even tourists who get there start walking faster because of their surroundings. The people around them are walking faster. Studies show that it just, it just increases as soon as you get there. Well, one, you probably don't want to get run over, but two, you've got to keep up. There's a lot of things to see there. But it's one of the fastest things. It's one of the fastest walking cities in the world. So you ask if something like that, your pace of walking, changes subconsciously when you're somewhere What else is changing subconsciously? When it comes to human formation, we live in a formation machine. That's what this world is. That's what social media is. It is constantly forming us. And what I want you guys to hear today is that we think of formation, we think of, oh, I want to be formed in the image of Christ, but formation is not a Christian thing. Formation is not just a religious thing. Formation is a human thing. We are being formed whether we like it or not. We are changing into something. Romans 12.2 says it this way. My mom hung this on my wall when I was younger. It says, don't be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then by testing, you can discern what's the will of God and what is good and is acceptable and is imperfect. And it says that we should not be conformed, but be renewed. It assumes we need transforming. It implies that we have been deformed. The implication here isn't that like, hey, I've accepted Christ, I'm a blank slate, and now I need to become like Jesus. No. The implication is that we have already been formed into something other than Christ, and to become like Christ, we must become deformed so that we can be transformed. We don't just become a blank slate when we accept God and Church culture is often, man, if I just think the right things, I will be the right thing. But we're not just brains on sticks, right? We are becoming something, and we're not becoming something just because we think something. We become something because of who and what we surround ourselves with. It's that age-old idiom, I suppose, that says... um, Show me your five, five closest friends and I'll show you my future, your future, right? So it's just like you are going to become like someone, like something. And so we are deformed. We have to be transformed to become the image of Christ. And I think, just going back on that, we're not just walking brains on sticks who think something and become think something. We have to be surrounded by something to be transformed. Everyone in this room, more often than not, has enough information to become like Christ. We are saturated with information especially in this culture. Like like maybe there are some of us that are newer to the faith but we can know what it's like to be like Christ. Like most of us have enough information if you've been in the church long enough. The problem is is that is that information just stuff we have that we are actually living out? That's when we really become judgmental when we have something that we're not living out. And so the truth is that you can't become self-centered when you're God-centered. When you focus around him, you cannot also coexist and be focused on yourself. And so the Bible's clear. We're made to be formed in the image of God, and thinking the right things isn't just going to do it. It's who we surround ourselves with. It's who we, how we seek God and who we seek God with. We're not just going to become God naturally. New Yorkers, they walk fast because the people around them are walking fast. They don't just start walking fast because they were teleported there. The people around them are walking out of speed, and they become that speed because they are surrounded by them. We're not just going to hate what is evil and love what is good like the Bible calls us to just because we think something. Second Corinthians 3.18 says this. It says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the promise is this, that if we behold the glory of God, we will have with unveiled face, then earnestly seeking him, we will be transformed. The Spirit will transform us when we seek him. But you don't become like Christ by showing up for church an hour on Sunday. You become like Christ by spending time with him, surrounding yourselves with people who want to be like him. So formation is this human thing. We're all being formed as human beings. So the Pharisees are talking to Jesus in this parable. Has anybody ever um, been in a conversation with someone, and then about 20 seconds later, you realize like they were probably like making fun of or insulting you? You don't have to raise your hand. But like maybe they're making a joke at your expense, and you realize a little too late, you're like, okay, all right, well, that hurts extra because they're probably right because I didn't even recognize they were making fun of me, and that hurts deep. So I, I, many of us can like, attest to that. Like, maybe somebody was like, making a joke, and you didn't realize it too later. This is kind of the situation that the Pharisees find ourselves, find themselves in because he's not talking to his disciples. He's not talking to just random people. He's talking to religious leaders in the church. And many of you are like, I'm not a religious leader in the church. What do I have to do with this parable? Why is he saying it to them? And I think the ultimate point of this parable, how do you apply it to your life, is the very end. The kingdom is given to those who produce fruit. That's what Jesus says. At the end of the parable, he says, I'm going to take this kingdom away, and I'm going to give it to someone who is going to produce fruit. Fruit. And oftentimes we're just satisfied with saying a prayer and, and not knowing God. But he said the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is going to be given to those who produce fruit in their life. The whole point is to produce fruit. It's the last thing that Jesus said before he left in Matthew 28, 19. He said, as he sent them on the Great Commission, he said, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, you're not alone. I'm with you till the end of the age. So Jesus was confident that as we teach what he commanded, we are called to bear fruit. And then Jesus says in this parable, I'm going to give the kingdom to those who bear fruit. And I think it's really easy for us to casually live our lives. We're all guilty of it. You're not alone in this. I am too. We can casually walk through life without actually living what we're called to. And so I asked this question at the beginning, but I'll ask it again. How do you get to a place where you reject the sun, and think everything is owed to you and inevitably end up filled with pride and murdering people that show up to take back what was rightfully theirs? Sent by God. How do you end up in that place? And the parable, they cease to realize that the vineyard doesn't belong to them. They thought it was owed to them. And the person that it actually belonged to is that person who wants us to bear fruit. This, God is on a mission to bear fruit. That's why you see it throughout the whole Bible. God is on a mission to bear. Make fruit and we forget that this is Jesus' vineyard. We we oftentimes think this is about me. This life is about me. What do I want out of this life? And we make decisions based off of that. And then we take our gift of salvation and we start to believe it was owed to us. We forget our responsibility. We forget our mission to bear fruit. But God is looking for those who are going to bear fruit. But these Pharisees had missed the picture. I told you we were gonna talk about First Kings again. There's this story in 1 King, and it's, it's a story about Ahab and Jezebel. They're two of the most wicked anti-God people in the text. They're evil, and they end up wanting a vineyard. They desire this vineyard, and it was Naboth's vineyard. And so what they end up doing to get the vineyard is they murder him. They murder him and take the Take them, And these Pharisees who were so saturated in the scripture, they knew every line. They memorized them. The way they would even quote psalms back then, would they, they would just say the first line because they didn't have chapter and verse. And then they would know what psalm they were talking about. They were so saturated. And they knew Ahab and Jezebel killed a man to take his vineyard. So when Jesus is telling this parable, he's saying, you have become like them. That's why it ends with them wanting to murder him. He said, you have become like this. They wanted to kill Jesus. They were doing the very thing that they were upset Jesus was saying that they were doing. They became hypocrites. And so when God calls us to produce fruit. He he tells us this in John chapter 15. It's, it's one of the last discussions he has with his disciples. And he talks about the process. He says to, to produce fruit, you have to be connected to the vine. And he calls himself the vine. And you guys can read that this week. It's one of the my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. But he says, if you're connected to the vine, you're going to bear fruit. And sometimes we get so caught up in this life about us and how we feel and and what we think about our job and what we think about our family. Or man, I wish my husband or wife were out of town. or I wish my kids were out of town so I could have some freedom. I wish I could make more of my own decisions. But instead, the kingdom of God is like this. God has given you a vineyard and your family and your spouse and your job. And he's called you to store it well. And he says, fruit will be produced there if you seek me. God wants to see fruit in your community and the people you surround yourself with. It's not an accident that you know the people you know or have the kids you know or are in the workplace that you know. God has put you there so that fruit happens. We know what the fruit are. They labeled out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what the kingdom of God is looking like. And fruit is meant to be produced in every aspect of our life. But when we do it casually and we start to think that the vineyard is our own and what I want out of this vineyard is not what God wants, then we miss the opportunity to bear fruit. And the kingdom of heaven is going to be given to people who bear fruit. That's what we're called to do, to bear fruit. And we are made to be free, and not just from authority. We're made to be free from the things that separate us from God. That's why Jesus came, so that we wouldn't be separated from Him. That's why we can be connected to the vine, like it says in John 15, so that we can bear fruit. We have that freedom. I'll leave you with this thought. So, skulls, we all know what skulls look like. Back in the day, they weren't punk rock. It wasn't super cool or whatever to have a skull. Skulls were associated with monks. This was a long time ago. Skulls were associated with monks. And oftentimes, monks who in the monastery had a brother pass away or something like that, they would keep the skull of their friend. They would set it on their desk or in their bedroom, and they would just look at it. And they would think, this life is so short. I am going to die how can I stored my vineyard well? How can I be intentional about the bearing of fruit? They would just set it on their desks. Matthew 16 says this. Jesus said, if you want to gain your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you will gain it. want to have life abundantly a life that bears fruit you have to lose it you have to give it up and say God I believe that this is your vineyard that you've called me to store it you have to make your decisions based off what you believe the will and spirit of God is doing in your life because he puts you there for a reason and he wants to make an impact and I think we just get caught up and what we have and our desires for our own life that we forget that God has called us to bear fruit. And so these monks, they set it on their desk and they said, this is a reminder that we are to die to ourselves, that we can produce fruit, that our chosen portion is Christ, not what we have in this life. So we are going to die so that we can live just like Jesus said in Matthew 16. We're gonna close with prayer. And then, as Pastor Aaron mentioned earlier, we've got communion. But as we're going day to day, maybe we've got tomorrow off. Some of us, and we've just got time to think about it. And maybe there's a million people you're going to see, and there's a barbecues that you have to attend. And what we should be thinking about is how can I impact this situation for Christ? How do I live and commit my life? How do I see a skull and believe that I'm going to die, but God has called me to impact where I'm at? These are things that, you know, we should be thinking about daily, but oftentimes they slip our mind in the busyness of our schedules. So I'm going to pray with you guys. I'm going to pray for all of us, myself, that we can live these lives that are focused on Christ, that we can store our vineyard well. If you'll bow your heads, God, we thank you for this opportunity to meet today. We thank you for this freedom that we celebrate. We thank you for true freedom, God, freedom that says that we no longer have to be separated from you, that with unveiled face, God, we can see your glory with no shame, that we won't be put to death because we can experience your presence, God. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you love us. We thank you for the vineyards that you've called us to store. I pray that in my heart and the hearts of the people of this room, God, that all of us together, God, that you would help us focus on what you've called us to store well, our lives, our job, our family. God, we just wanna focus on you this morning because we don't believe that this life is accidental. God, I don't believe this life is accidental for anyone in this room or anyone we come in contact with. You've put us in this place to store what you've called us to well. God, I firmly believe that the kingdom is going to be given to people who bear fruit. God, I pray that we would be fruit bearers in this place. That this place, Generations Church in Canton, Georgia, would be a place where fruit, the fruit of your spirit is known. God, we don't want to just show up on church on Sunday. We want to impact a community. Woodstock and Canton and Ballground Ground and, and Waleska and Jasper, God, we want it to spread. That's what you've called us to do. You didn't call us to just sit here and get something for us. You've called us to store it and bear fruit, and I believe that this morning. I pray that you'd put that thought in all of our hearts and minds, that if we die unto ourselves, we will live, and that you would be glorified through it all. In your name, amen. In this parable, Jesus references Psalm 118. It's about a king who's going to come and he's going to change things. Um, He said the cornerstone that was rejected um, is the one that God has now selected. And it is marvelous in God's eyes that it would be that way. And this idea of communion, taking the bread and the cup, is that we would have faith that God has done and is doing something It stirs up faith in our own hearts and the ones around us so we can say, me, these people in this room who take communion with me are believers in Christ and what he has done and is continuing to do. And as we partake in communion, I pray that we would focus on the fact that God has called us to die, but he's also called us to live. Die so that we can live, that we have to be deformed so that we can be transformed into people that bear fruit. As we take in this bread and this cup, we believe that Jesus offered it before he died so that it would be a reminder that would just stir up good works in our hearts as the scripture says so we're going to pass out the elements um, the bread and the cup and we'll pray over each one and we'll set our hearts and our mind on what Jesus did so that we can stir up faith in our own hearts just stir up faith it's his faith that we haven't rejected him that he, we believe that he's king and that he's coming back. And as we respond with this, just be reminded that he loves us, that he's committed to us, that he's calling us to refocus on our minds and the things above and not the things below, that God has a plan for each person in this room what he's doing. Just a reminder that We aren't the ones who planted this vineyard that He's placed us in. And as the tenants, we're called to store it well. God, I thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you for your body that was bruised and and broken, that we could find you. Continue to pass it out. Just take a moment to yourself to, between you and God, what this moment means between you and Him. It's a representation of, that if He died, we must also die to ourselves, to our own desires. just a a me thing before I take the wafer I I tend to always uh, snap it in half in my hand think about what it meant that Jesus' body was broken for us it's easy to think about that but not to truly know what it means to be bruised and beaten and, and hung on a cross nailed to it it's gruesome it's not a secret that it's gruesome he did that so that all of us could reach him, that we could live before him with unveiled face. So as you take the wafer, um, we ponder that Jesus was broken so that we could be Jesus died he took the cup and he said this is my blood that was shed for you as we think about that Peter cried out he said let it not be I don't want you to go through that Jesus said no this is what has to happen this is what has to happen how about my blood is shed so that you can stand before God so as you think about that as you take this this juice this cup and God's blood was shed not just human blood. No, fully God, fully man. God's blood was shed that we could be made whole. Partake when you're ready. God, we thank you for this holy moment. This moment that you told us to continue to do to remind our hearts and our souls who is king. It's not just symbolism. We don't believe that. God, we actively believe that something happens spiritually when we take communion. God, stir up faith in our hearts this morning to truly believe that the Son of God died, bled, was broken so that we could be made whole. That we could stand before you with no fear. God, we thank you for this moment. Thank you for each family represented in this room. God, I believe that you're doing a work in each one of our lives and that we are going to store what you've called us to well. God, and that you give us all the grace in the world to make this happen. We thank you for that. Your name would be glorified as we go out. We pray for safety as we continue on during this week, during this holiday tomorrow. We thank you for the freedom you've given us. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe. God, ones that don't have this freedom that we celebrate. We stir up faith in their hearts too. Let us all be unity. Let us all be one as the body of Christ one spirit, one faith that we adhere to. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.